We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's a weekly podcast. We talk about news, politics, religion, sex, the things that are going on in the world things that affect our society, what's happening to our society? Is it moving forwards, backwards? What are the trends? What's happening of interest? So that's what we do every week. Normally there's a panel of three, but on this occasion, Scott can't join us. So it's just two of us. It's myself, uh, Trevor, aka the Iron Fist, and with me, Paul, the 12th man. Greetings, Earthlings, and greetings, Trevor. Mm. I'm sure Scott's with us in spirit, so uh, to speak. He would be in spirit, yeah. yeah, yeah. So... Um, So, we've got a special episode, Paul. We're going to talk about Indigenous matters. We're going to wrap up as best we can the sorts of things we've been saying about Indigenous issues and and sort of try and summarise positions and just have it all in one spot because we've picked away at it for four years Mm. and I've kept notes of everything we've said and topics and articles we've come across and I've gathered them all together. And I've got a Word document in front of me that's 32 pages long. <laughs> wow. So we're probably not going to get through all of it. It's How many pages of that is the uh, complaints from listeners? <laughs> that's to come. So that's true. It's, uh, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's we're a contentious good, yeah, topic and, and we're well aware of that. Mm, yeah. We know we're venturing into uh, risky territory. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so we'll see where it takes us. But we're going to talk about Indigenous issues and, and our position. And I like to think that on a lot of issues I'm quite left-wing, mm. I think, these days, more so than I was four years ago. That's uh, Very much into, you know, looking after the poor and the oppressed, uh, the disadvantaged. You have a, a heart of gold. Thanks. Trevor. Give them a leg up. Yeah, but um, uh, lots of people on the left have a different view and approach to the Indigenous issues than what I would have. Yeah. So it's and that's interesting. interesting because, I mean, yeah. I've always considered myself left of mm. centre as well and yet, mm. um, you know, over the last four or five years I've noticed my views on certain things diverging from what, you know, perhaps the majority of left-leaning people would take as mm. well. Yeah. And it really matches up with identity politics mm, in the exactly. same way that we both have a problem with identity mm. politics, which the left in many cases has adopted. Mm. So it, it's really part and parcel of the same thing, I think. Indeed. Mm. So, um, you know, dear listener, if this, is, if this is the first time you've joined us, um, we're not racists. In fact, I would just, argue... Just the fact that you've you've denied being a racist <laughs> makes you a racist in some people's estimation, Trevor. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I would argue many of the people in f- favour of lots of Indigenous action at the moment are, in fact, the racists. Mm. So well, I just quickly grabbed a little uh, definition from Wikipedia, which I thought, to me, made sense. Uh, racism. Is the belief in the superiority of one race over another... It may also include prejudice, discrimination or antagonism directed against other people because they are of a different race or ethnicity or the belief that members of different races or ethnicities should be treated differently. 
Modern variants of racism are often based in social perceptions of biological differences between peoples. These views can take the form of social actions, practices or beliefs or political systems in which different races are ranked as inherently superior or inferior to each other based on presumed shared inheritable traits, abilities or qualities. So the classic def, you know, thought of a racist is a sort of a Ku Klux Klan member who believes that the white people are superior inherently to black people. Yeah, and, yeah. and act accordingly, of course. Mm. So that's your sort of your classic racist. Have you ever but, sort of tested in your own mind your, your mm. own sort of thoughts and behaviours towards people of difference, you know, just to sort of, you know, examine your own deepest, darkest thoughts about how you feel about people who are different? Well, I don't know. Don't we do that every week here in some sense, try and examine our thoughts on yeah. No, on I'm a great believer in, mm. in regularly, you know, mm. examining my own assumptions about things. But mm. um, anyway. Okay. So, so that was the classic when you're thinking of a racist. And, and the nasty part about that is it's, it's a belief that certain individuals are inherently um, inherently lesser, not as smart, not as good uh, or whatever, simply by virtue of the race that, that, that mm. they're in. So it's ascribing a, a belief to them based on their skin colour. Mm. It's often detrimental. Mm. But what we're tending to find is there's um, characteristics of being described to people or ascribed to people based on their skin colour, which is seen as, as good, and it's like, well, you're that skin colour. You've got uh, certain uh, spiritual abilities or other things which mm. are sort of in a good light. So, you know, I would argue that that's a form of racism where you are not necessarily saying somebody's picked up a bad trait because of their skin colour, but you're saying they pick up a good trait because of yeah. their skin colour is also a racist yeah. thing. So, okay, back to this definition. The... Um, it may include prejudice, discrimination or antagonism directed against other people because they are of a different race um, or the belief that members of different races or ethnicities should be treated differently. Mm. So here's where we're going to come into problems because I don't think people should be treated differently because of their race. I think they should be treated differently because of particular disadvantage that they may be suffering. Poor, unhealthy or in a spot of bother for whatever reason, mm. which um, is independent of their skin colour. Absolutely, yeah. So that's, that's setting out the scene mm. of where we're heading. Um, so bear in mind, um, positive racism towards one race must necessarily involve negative racism to the other races. Like if you are going to... Um, provide benefits for one race and you're saying, well, it's positive. Well, if you're a member of – if you're not a member of that race, it's actually negative as well. So when you're dividing up a pot uh, and you're only giving some of the pot to some people, then you're necessarily disadvantaging the others, even though they're not having something taken off them. So keep that in mind as well. Um, and why are we concerned about Indigenous people in the first place, Paul? And it's because – we see that disproportionately members of their group suffer disadvantage and injustices. Mm -hmm. And 
it's the disadvantage and suffering that motivates us and that's what we've got to keep our eye on and we've got to acknowledge that not everybody of that skin colour suffers that disadvantage and maybe people of other skin colours do suffer that disadvantage so it's not the skin colour, it's the disadvantage that counts and we'll probably be on this like a broken record probably. So there we go. So that's that. Now, um, a few other ground rules before we get started. The ground rules and the um, the lead up to this is going to take up half the episode, so we'll see how we go. But um, I think we're going to state a proposition and then the underlying principle which is being applied, and then we're going to apply that principle to other scenarios and, and check whether it seems to stack up. To give you an example later on in this topic, we're going to talk about the fact that it seems an argument on behalf of Indigenous people is that they were here first and therefore have some special rights that others don't have. That's the sort of uh, proposition. And then I would say, well, if you think that's correct, then how does that apply to refugees? Do we, uh, as the people already here, have the right to say to refugees, well, we're here before you, so you can't be a full citizen, you're going to get some partial rights that that we don't have. And, and so when you you know provide a principle and then you take that principle and apply it to other scenarios, suddenly it shines a light on the principle as to whether it's a good one or a bad one. You say, well, we've got to, let's explore this principle. How does, it, how does it stack up when you apply it with other people and other situations and does it still look as fair? So that's how we're you know, going to be treating some of this. The other thing that we've come across, Paul, is... You see on panel discussions and other things where they say, well, um, as a white man, you've not experienced persecution. And without the lived experience of being an Indigenous person, you can't comment. Do you want to jump in on that one and your response Mm. to that? I mean, I I get a little bit irritated by that as well. And Mm. and not that I, I don't think people experience um, things that you could characterise as racism. Obviously, some people do. And I suppose in, in some respects, I would have to say I, I've, I've never consciously been, you know, had a, had a bad time, had a bad experience. Mm. Um, although, no, hang on. No, I lie. I did once in Indonesia. I, I had a rather unpleasant experience just because I was a, um, a young Western tourist and I was um, a, a local guy in Indonesia befriended me or pretended to befriend me and sort of, you know, beckoned me to jump on his motorbike and he, mm. took, me, he took me to a place where I didn't know where, where I was and basically abandoned me, you know. But, you know, I mean, it's sort of small, small change in the grand mm. scheme of things. Mm. But, yeah, I, I suppose it's fair to say that we, it's hard for us to to fully comprehend the sorts of lived experience that people who are not of European ancestry mm. might experience in mm. Australia. Yeah. So I don't know what it's like to walk into a shop and have people look at you suspiciously all the time. Exactly. Think that you might be yeah. about to steal stuff. And Call the security yeah. to, to follow us around yeah. and things like that. Yeah. yeah, and just sort of standing out in a crowd. Exactly. So I haven't experienced that. But I can't imagine what it's like. And I can certainly comment on what rules and regulations we should put in place mm. to deal with that. 
And so, you can also empathise with a person mm. who has experienced it. Yes. It's not like we are totally incapable of understanding why that's uh, an objectionable or an unpleasant experience. Yeah. One of the things about being human is that you are able to put yourself in the shoes of other people and see it from their perspective. Absolutely, yeah. Particularly if you're prepared to listen and hear what they're saying, yep. which we are. So, so if your argument is, well, you know, if you haven't lived as an Aboriginal person, an Indigenous person, you just can't talk about this topic. You have no standing. Well, we might as well stop now. And if you're of that view, then turn off. And <laughs> you know, we, we, But if we can't have a debate, then uh, we just can't simply say to the oppressed or disadvantaged, well, we'll all stand back and just let you deal with it and talk about it and come up with your own solutions. Mm. Like, that's not how it works. Yeah. We need to put all of our heads together and try and come up with solutions. So We are a nation after mm. all. And, you know, there's lots of other groups and, and people. And here again, dear listener, we'll sort of take that principle. If you say, well, if you're not a member of a group, then you can't determine rules that will affect that group because you don't have their lived experience. Well, if we were to say that, um, Christians say that they're persecuted and discriminated against at the moment, that there's, you know, they have a problem with freedom of religion in, in this country. So I don't live as a Christian and I can't speak about their human interactions and how they might, you know, every day living as a Christian. But I can certainly speak about our rules and systems and structures and say, well, BS on that. Like you're not, you don't have a problem with freedom of religion here. I don't need to be... um, uh, and it's not Christian the same as that. having a different skin colour or a different mm. sort of uh, physical appearance difference, is it? I mm. mean, if you're a Christian, mm. if you don't mention it, who would know? Mm. Yeah. So yep. you're not going to experience that sort of obvious discriminatory behaviour. Yeah. So uh, the other thing was other sort of topics that we've dealt with in the past. Oh, look, I could say, um, again, I could take that argument. I could turn around and say something like, uh, well, as a non-lawyer, you can't comment about laws. Yes, indeed. But of course you can. Of course you can, yes. You know, you can talk about what's right and what's just. So, yeah. uh, of course you can. Um, as an upper-middle-class media celebrity Aboriginal person, you can't comment on the plight of remote Aboriginal people. I mean, I could say that. Could, yeah. We could break down people's identities into the smallest mm. categories and say, well, you don't fit that box, so you can't talk about it. We could go on and on, so... Um, it would even undermine our political system because mm. we could say our elected representatives can't possibly know what each of us as individuals live through. Yes. So if you believe in that argument, then you'll just be in a room of people and none of you will be able to talk because uh, I'll just keep breaking down your minority status groups mm. until the point where you're, you're no longer a member of any group and uh, we could do that forever. So that's not helpful. So, right, Paul, still... Um, setting this up. And let me just see. Um, you know, this, um, I just don't have the internet speed. If you're watching on the live stream, sorry, but I'm, I'm not able to get the internet speed. So okay. we'll just see what happens. Okay. Um, terminology. When we're talking about Indigenous brothers and sisters, Paul. Mm-hmm. Aboriginal, Aborigine, First Peoples. Indigenous, got any uh, preferred words that you use or what do you tend to use? Indigenous. Mm. So that seems to be 
are perfectly acceptable in most situations. Although I got pulled up for spelling it with a lowercase i once on, right. on the internet. Somebody right. demanded I must use mm. the up, uppercase i, mm. which I thought was pretty uh, trivial. Yeah. Incidentally, the other week when you were talking about that forest playground that yes, you visited. the Indigenous Forest. The Indigenous Forest. And one of our listeners said, well, an Indigenous forest could mean that it's just got native trees that are Indigenous. I, I saw the comment, yeah. but I've never heard a forest referred to as an Indigenous forest before, have you? It would you? normally be a native, native forest. Native forest, exactly, yeah. which is not exactly the same thing. So if they were wanting to say native forest, it would be unusual, yeah. But anyway... Um, it seemed a very uh, pretentious, ostentatious, if I can put it that way, an ostentatious use of the word Indigenous. It yes. seemed to me they were trying too hard to be fashionable. Given that the use of the word Indigenous is so much attached to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people... Exactly. Uh, ..and the option of calling it a native forest was there... Yeah. Anyway, that's by the by. Um, so, yes, Indigenous, uh, Aboriginal as an adjective to mm-hmm. describe people seems to be okay... Um, but not an Aboriginal as a noun. You might say an Aboriginal person, mm. Aboriginal man, Aboriginal mm. woman, but not an Aboriginal. Mm. Full or stop an Aborigine as or, a noun. Yes, or an Aborigine mm. without, without sort of attaching uh, the Aboriginal person. Yeah. Uh, you're then sort of saying they're not really a person, they're it, something else. So. Yeah, it is interpreted that way. Mm. Mm. So there we go. That's terminology. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some... St- Sorry, before Sorry. you go mm. on, what about the, term, the, the, the new terminology that, that we're uh, expected to, to wear, like mm. white fella, black oh. fella, mm. uh, mob? Well, mob refers to the, their mob normally, don't they? Yeah. You don't have a white mob, it's a black mob. Uh, yeah. Mm. So that's um, self-descriptive. But I've, I've seen some other new ones and they just don't come immediately to mind. But do you know what I mean? Um, People shape language to suit their their own particular purposes and predilections, don't they? Mm. Yeah, I don't have a problem. I, I don't have a huge problem either. Okay. I mean, yep. to me, I mean, words are useful and, and, and I try to be precise with language mm. as far as possible. But, yeah, if they want to refer to themselves as, as a mob or mm. black... I, I do take exception, I must say, to black fellas and white fellas because I don't think it's useful to categorise people in such clear sort of, you know, dichotomous categories. Mm -hmm. Do you? Do you have a problem with it? No. You don't really? Yeah, I find it irritating. Mm. No, I'm okay with that. (laughs) How many uh, Indigenous people in Australia, Paul? Um, How many are there? Yes, according to the latest census, there was 649,171 who identified as Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, the interesting thing is the majority of those people, 81%, live in non-remote areas of Australia. Oh, really? Mm. 81%? That's 81%. surprising, isn't Yeah. It? So I'm going to bring up on the screen, it's probably uh, probably nobody watching because of you know, difficulties. I brought up a map of Australia on the screen and... Uh, if you get a chance to look at this at some stage, dear listener, it's got most of Australia, like obviously the desert remote areas is in, in a light yellow and then there's a light green and then progressively darker green sort of categories. So 
the yellow and the very light green are, um, are the very remote and remote. But as we said, 81% of um, Indigenous I'm, I'm people surprised, I have to say. live in this sort of non-remote area. And that's really um, Tasmanian East Coast. Uh, in Western Australia, um, this sort of um, non-remote area would be around Perth and Margaret River. And then on the East Coast, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, up to Brisbane... Uh, areas that are about three to four hours drive from the coast. So mm. 81% of uh, Indigenous people live about three to four hours drive from the coast mm. uh, is how it pans out. So it is, it is a lot, yeah. So is it just a case that we most often hear about Indigenous people in more remote or country, country areas? Um, I don't know. It's just a perception that we've got, isn't it? That when it seems we think, seems to be a perception that I certainly had. Mm, yeah. So, um, so in the show notes, have a look at the links, and you'll see the picture that I'm referring to. Now, uh, in the most recent census, there's been a major increase in the number of people. And that was a fairly recent, yeah, and quite well, uh, surprising increase, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. So. Uh, from 2011 to 2016, uh, there was an 18.4% increase in people who identify as Indigenous. The previous six-year gap, uh, five-year gap, it was 20.5% increase. So the census people are saying that there's a significant number of people identifying and the increase is happening... I'm just going to swap this screen back. Uh, the increase, Paul, is happening in those uh, non-remote areas, mm. in areas like uh, New South Wales, uh, major cities in yeah. the east coast of Australia. Uh, so so the, the growth primarily in numbers is uh, major cities on the east coast of Australia, 22.8%, and the remote areas only 2%. So big increase in numbers of people in in um, non-remote areas. What they're also finding is that, um, let me just see here if I've got the actual cities. Um, yeah. So this proportion varied by jurisdiction with the proportions higher than the national rate observed in New South Wales, Tasmania and Victoria. And this is a problem because the government funds the states um, according to the census outcome. Mm. So extra money is paid to traditionally the Northern Territory because the money is meant to be spent on Indigenous people. Fair enough, I mm. say. Sure. Good idea. And what's happening, though, is that because the census is revealing larger numbers, increasingly larger numbers of Indigenous people in these metropolitan areas, mm. the Northern Territory is getting less and less share of the pool of funds that they would otherwise have got. Mm. And clearly the idea of these extra payments are to help disadvantaged, suffering people, mm. not well-to-do to uh, Indigenous people. Yeah. Exactly. So um, Aboriginal lawyer Michael Mansell said Commonwealth funds were not being distributed properly. The Yothu Yindi Foundation proposes that the definition of Aboriginality be changed 
so that increasing numbers of people from the south of the nation identifying as Aboriginal do not tip the scales against disadvantaged Indigenous people in remote parts of the Northern Territory. And did they outline their criteria? No, not in what I saw here. So um, uh, so my, Michael Mansell said it should be based on need rather than somebody declaring I am an Aboriginal. Ooh, that's interesting, isn't Which it? Which is kind of the theme of what we're going to be saying here. Indeed. Yeah. So... Um, there's a quote here. So if somebody merely claims to be of a particular identity, then the Indigenous Affairs budget is divided up amongst the statistics of the census, which doesn't give those most in need the greatest access to the resources. Um, da, da, da. He said here, I think the people who are ticking the box in the census have been given information that's very doubtful as to its authenticity, and people don't know that, and they just tick it thinking, well, I've been told this, so I better tick it. Meaning, I've been told I'm Aboriginal, so I better tick it. So there we go. That's interesting that because of that sort of problem, uh, Indigenous leaders and communities are saying we need to change the definition of Aboriginal because it's not giving a fair result. It's not helping the disadvantaged. There's a good reason to change Mm. something. And yet, you know, we were under the impression, I think I I can say we, that uh, if... If you self-identified and then you had corroborating, you know, testimony from mm. people who were, you know, already recognised as Indigenous people, if they mm. said that, yeah, you're an Indigenous, then that mm. was good enough. There was kind of a three-part... Now, I don't have this in the notes, but we'd previously looked at, I think, a three-part thing where you had to identify as Aboriginal, you had to have membership of a clan or tribe accepted and you had to have some sort of, like... DNA ancestry happening but as well. But not a DNA test. No, but that was the sort of the three tests to be mm-hmm. to be Indigenous. So, mm-hmm. yes. So let's look at disadvantage. Mm-hmm. How bad is it out there? Life expectancy for Indigenous Australians is 10 years less than for the non-Indigenous population. The, employment rate is, the unemployment rate is nearly four times higher. The child mortality rate uh, more than twice so. Indigenous Australians are incarcerated at a higher rate than any other group on earth, making up 3% of the Australian population but 27% of adult prisoners. So clearly there is a problem. Indeed. And just I've got some health statistics here from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Let's see what they say. Um... There has been improvement in certain factors in recent years, but it's sort of just marginal. Like not, not high school graduation? No, like no, that. this is about health. So, oh, I see. Uh, for example, in male life expectancy, non-Indigenous males previously were likely to live 11.4 years less and now it's 10.6 years less. So, so they're, they're getting closer to the non-Indigenous life expectancy, but they're still a long way off. Okay. Yep. Uh, same for females, similar sorts of things, and child mortality rates mm-hmm. are improving, but they're still well above, way above uh, non-Indigenous. Yeah. Things like smoking, uh, smoking rates amongst Indigenous Australians have declined from 51% to 42%, um, things like that. But they're still way more likely to smoke, 2.7 times more likely. Um, 2.9 times more likely to have long-term ear and hearing problems. Um, 2.7 times likely, more likely to have high levels of stress. Um, all sorts of terrible statistics. Mm. 
interestingly, um, what has contributed to the health gap? And uh, basically, there are three factors. So there's social determinants. So uh, Indigenous Australians on average have lower levels of education, employment income and poorer quality housing than non-Indigenous Australians. So that seems to be worth about 34% of the, of the problem. Mm-hmm. Social determinants. Indigenous Australians on average have lower levels of... Um, uh, no, I've done that one. Sorry, health risk factors. So Indigenous Australians on average... Higher rates of smoking, risky alcohol consumption, exercise less. Uh, so these, those sort of uh, health risk factors seem to account for another 19%. Um, but there's about 47% that's kind of unexplained. So, And they obviously do studies where they've looked at people of uh, um, similar incomes and compared to uh, Indigenous people of similar incomes mm-hmm. and, and found these gaps and worked it out that way. Yeah. So um, so there we go. That's the sort of state of play in a nutshell without spending too much time on it. Uh, what There's a problem. What should we be doing? How we should be thinking about it, Paul? And I like to kick off just briefly, and we're going to come back to this later, Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X. So Martin Luther King, well, excuse me. By the way, the beer is from our beer sponsor tonight. Myself, because Scott's not here and he didn't bring any of the beer. So Mountain Goat, uh, put me down, Scott, as a beer sponsor. For the Thank you, podcast. Iron Fist, for yeah. the beer. Yeah. <laughs> what are we drinking? Mountain Goat. Mountain Goat uh, yeah, it's good. Mountain Goat, fancy pants. Yeah. So there you go. I can't get it out of the yeah, cooler, so I won't look. Yeah. Right. Um, Martin Luther King mm. famously said words along the lines of, ask not the colour of the skin, but what's the content of the character? So he was a universalist. Um, he wanted uh, all people to be uplifted. Malcolm X was more of black people, you've got to band together as a group and fight for your rights as black people. Don't worry about the white working class or the other disadvantaged groups. You've got to carve out your own territory and your own identity and your own problem and and fix that. So two different approaches to uh, the problem. And so I prefer the Martin Luther King one. Oh, absolutely. I Mm. think I I would have liked to have thought that um, most liberal humanists would have... Certainly, twenty or thirty years ago, been inclined to be universalists, wouldn't they? They seem. Mm. I mean, a lot of leftists seem to be going down the identity politics path, and that's clearly not universalist. Yeah, I can understand it. I can understand how people would have banded together in the Malcolm X fashion, exactly, and said, "Well, let's just organise as a group, and Mm. let's let's do our thing as a group, and not worry about the rest." Circle the wagons. mm. Keep the. Indians out, so yeah. to speak. Ultimately, though, I don't think it's the best choice. And I, I think that's either. what people are doing. So anyway, you know, why are we talking about this now at the moment? Because we've got the Uluru Statement from the heart, which has been in the news, and it's really uh, talking about a voice for Indigenous people to be given to the Parliament of Australia. And it was 
Look, the wording of the document is a little, yeah, a little vague in places, but essentially, from you know, Barnaby Joyce and others were accused of describing it unfairly as a third chamber mm. of Parliament. So, Malcolm Turnbull famously yeah. made that statement. Yeah. <clears throat> so it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but Indigenous people are looking for a special voice in Parliament where they are there and talking to the decision makers about their opinion on proposed laws that would affect Indigenous people and that they be consulted with and ultimately, though, they may not be, you know, they don't have an actual power to to veto law or to put law in place, but mm-hmm. they have a, a right to be heard and listened to in Parliament mm-hmm. and... It seems also that the membership of this uh, advisory body would be just Indigenous people, Mm. which I don't see emphasised much anywhere, but that seems to be the case from other readings I'd had. And in fact, I I read one article which was written by a constitutional expert. Yes, and Tony, 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 I believe. The same one. And she said, well, look, it's, it's not that unusual... Um, to have an advisory, you know, body mm. advising the parliament, um, and she she cited things like, um, well, there were a number of them. But I'm going to go through them. Yes, mm. but you know, I would make the point that none of them were based on a person's race or you know, ethnic identity. Mm. In other words, you didn't have to belong to a particular subgroup of Australian yes. society yes. to get yourself onto one of those bodies. Yeah, so. Uh, we've been accused on this podcast of talking about Indigenous matters but never having any Indigenous people here to argue with us. Mm. And uh, that's true, but it's not easy to get people on to this podcast. You have tried. Yeah, we have tried at different times. And also, uh, I haven't in recent times because I wanted to put out, I wanted to be a very uh, deep and constructive sort of discussion Mm -hmm. and I wanted to give fair warning to somebody about these are the ideas and topics that we're thinking of so this is what we want you to address and don't bother coming on unless you want to deal with these things. I mean you can come up with other things as well that we haven't thought about, great, no problem but these are essential queries that you need to have thought about Mm. if you want to talk to us because ultimately if this is going to go to some referendum or something then We're the sort of people who've got to be convinced it's it's a good idea. So let me just change a window here so I can see if... um, Bear with me me one second. Oh, I'm just mucking around with this. Uh, uh, Right, that's okay. Um, I think the stream was really bad and now it's only sometimes bad, but uh, who knows, we'll we'll see. Okay, Um, so Anne Twomey, I think, T-W-O-M-E-Y... Uh, so she is a uh, constitutional um, professor of constitutional law, University of Sydney Law School. So she wrote an article about all this. So I think it's fair enough that we sort of look at her article and Absolutely. deal with yeah, I read the arguments that she's come up with. So here she goes, uh, quoting her at different times. In rejecting this proposal, one claim made by the government was that this would be discriminatory and contrary to principles of equality because it would give one racial group a means of influencing parliament that is not open to others. She goes on, but it must be remembered 
that it is already the case that Indigenous Australians form the only racial groups about which laws are made. Mm. This is because they are the only racial groups that lived in Australia prior to European settlement and accordingly have continuing legal rights, such as native title rights. So I would say in response to that, just because there are already special racial laws is not a good reason why there should be more. No, and I would argue that we should remove the special racial laws from the Constitution Indeed. and make our Constitution completely uh, free of any references to race. Yeah. And when you say that they are the only racial group subject to a law, yeah, there's a problem with that because you don't have to name a group to make legislation relevant to them. If you make a law granting a privilege to Indigenous people you're effectively making a law saying everyone has this privilege except non-Indigenous people. Mm. Like when you, when you give a right to somebody which you don't give to others, you're making laws in respect of the others as well. Absolutely. So it's just wrong to say that they're the only racial group about whom laws are made. When laws are made, they are made and affect all of us, mm. whether we're part of the group or not, because we either get the privilege or the suffering or we don't. Mm. And... That makes a difference. She goes on. Their continuing cultural heritage is also entitled to special legal protection and sustenance as part of Australia's national heritage. So, the continuing cultural heritage is also entitled to special legal protection and sustenance. I would say cultural artefacts are worthy of protection but this reference to continuing cultural heritage seems to be a reference to cultural norms and practices mm. and seems to possibly assume that these are somehow sacred and should not evolve over time. Mm. These cultural norms and practices, I say, are ideological choices, the same as mine, nothing special. Um, the artefacts are special. Absolutely. And I think. And deserve most, protection. Absolutely. But yeah. the actual ideology and ideas of a culture are not sacred. They're meant to change and evolve mm. over time. And, you know, locking in these things because you think the old way is the best way mm. and must be preserved yeah. could be doing somebody a real disservice. Not only that, but I'm sure we can mm. think of several examples where that would be totally inappropriate. I mean, mm. if. If people migrating to our country from very different cultural traditions insisted that their, uh, you know, um, cultural heritage should be entitled to special legal protection and sustenance, mm. uh, why, well, why not? Why if, not? If one group is exactly. entitled, I mean, all you know. Again, it's just because you're, we're going to deal with this whole thing of just because you're here first, does that should that make a difference? And there's another case is the uh, with the Catholic Church um, claiming that um, confession was sacrosanct. Yes, yeah, and that's a special cultural tradition for mm. for the Catholic Church. And recently, the law, I, I believe, has said, "No, I'm sorry, that doesn't deserve special." Protection just because it's part of your cultural tradition. Yeah, I think maybe Victoria has brought that in, but I'm not sure. Mm. <clears throat> right. So back to this uh, constitutional lawyer, Professor. Um, excuse me. 
She says, if established, the body representing Indigenous voices would have its views tabled in the Parliament so the Parliament could be better informed when it makes laws. It would not be the only body to inform Parliament. There are numerous other bodies that already fulfil this function, representing other points of view. They include the Productivity Commission, the Australian Law Reform Commission, the Australian Human Rights Commission and the Auditor General. They all make reports directly to Parliament which are tabled so that our lawmakers can be better informed when they enact laws. Mm. Well, the answer is why not do the same? And none of those would have a racist employment policy. Presumably they employ the best people possible yeah. to advise on those areas. Yeah, what people happened would... to the Racial Discrimination Act? Does it mm. not apply to that particular body? Uh, it won't do if that's a new not. body, yeah. Right, going back to the professor, she says, uh, is any of these bodies a third house of parliament? Obviously not. Uh, of course not. None of them has the power to initiate a bill in the parliament. They can neither vote on the passage of legislation nor veto it. None is a constituent part of the body that makes laws. It would be exactly the same for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. It could not be a third house of Parliament simply because it would have no power to initiate, pass or reject bills. Its role would be to give voice to Indigenous views so they could be heard within the Parliament. Mm -hmm. Again, so set up an Indigenous commission the same way, I say. She says, if we are comfortable with the Auditor General reporting to Parliament and advising about issues of financial prudence and accountability then it's difficult to see how we would not be comfortable with an Indigenous body informing Parliament about matters that could improve the effectiveness and utility of its laws in Indigenous affairs and the efficient targeting of its expenditure. And I again would say, well, set it up like you would the Auditor-General. She says, um, Houses of Parliament are not obliged to implement the advice of the Auditor-General, but will give it respect if it is sensible, well-reasoned and wise. The same would no doubt be true of any advice or recommendation of the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Mm. It's hard to imagine anyone, well, anyone would argue that it is better for Parliament to be ignorant and ill-informed, its laws ineffective and its expenditure wasteful. I think we've answered that. Just do the same as the Auditor-General. She herself says... Why do we need a constitutional amendment to give effect to this proposal when other bodies already fulfil a similar role under ordinary legislation? She says, an important aspect of the proposal is the moral authority of the people. If, as in 1967, the vast swath of Australian people voted in favour of Indigenous Australians having a voice about laws, uh, it would not only provide a profound reconciliatory moment... I would say, a possibly profoundly divisive mm. and racist moment. I agree. In Australian political history, but here's the thing, it would also impose a sufficient political pressure to prevent future backsliding. Governments would be forced to make the new system work and focus upon how to get the best out of it. It could not be abandoned by neglect. So the argument is, if it's part of the constitution, it can't disappear, mm. whereas a Productivity Commission or an Auditor General could potentially disappear. Or a NATSIC. Yeah. But my point is, if it's merely advisory and the only thing stopping a then-government from disbanding it is its constitutional authority, then you can be sure that such a government would ignore the advisory body. Like, having it in the Constitution mm. isn't going to solve that problem. If they hate it so much that they want to get rid of it, mm. oh, damn, we can't because it's in the Constitution, they're just not going to listen to it. Mm. 
or just you know make tokenistic sort of measures to you know to to make it appear as if they're doing something. Mm. And she sort of finishes off by saying it looks like the government might be coming around on this issue, and I think you're right. And I think the government might be coming around. It seems they, even seem, a, they look like yeah, they are, yeah, yeah. Particularly when people like Barnaby Joyce are coming out and saying, "Oh, maybe I was wrong." Hmm. So that's uh, dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to get into more sort of hodgepodge of topics related to this, and. The justification, the moral authority for a lot of this, it seems to be um, modern Indigenous people seem to be claiming to have inherited rights from their ancestors. At the same time, there's an implied allegation that white people have inherited the guilt of their ancestors. Seems to be all part of this. Seems to be. Mm. Because it's an intergenerational thing Mm. that we're talking about. Indeed. Can't be any getting around that. No. So first up, as we've said before, isn't an Indigenous person of mixed race, in effect, complaining of injustices committed by one set of their ancestors against another set of their ancestors? They seem to be. Um, I mean, it's okay if people want to make a choice and identify with one part of their ancestry and ignore the other. Mm. Go ahead. Sure. Making laws... That was a different matter. What you want to do in your private life, go ahead. Yeah, like yeah. some people say, I'm Irish Australian or mm. Italian Australian or Greek Australian or whatever, mm. Mm. Chinese Australian. Mm. Why not mm. if that makes you feel good yeah. about yourself? Yeah. But why should the rest of the population wear that? Yeah, and it's a different matter. If you're, if you're claiming rights then as a matter of inheritance then we're able to say, okay, well, what about the other ancestry? How's that work? Mm. Explain that. Mm. And just because you choose one rather than the other doesn't really stack up to me. So, um, yeah, this sort of inherited guilt sounds a lot like original sin. And in this podcast, we spend a lot of time bagging religion and the concept of original sin. So Mm. it's it's got a a close association with it, it seems. Yeah. Um, one thing I would say is my father was in the Second World War, uh, spent time in Changi Prison, Burma Railway. Um, you know, did he wipe his guilt out by any chance by defending the sort of freedom of this country? Are you able to clear off some guilt in some, in some way? Is that possible? Is, is there a way of removing the guilt through an act like that? Mm. I don't know. What, what do you think? What, what do Aborig- you know, Tell me, Indigenous people out there, mm. is it worth anything in this cause? And, you know, for that matter, did I inherit his clean soul? By each- I mean... <laughs> so that- if you can inherit guilt, why can't you inherit... If- uh, what, what's the opposite of guilt in the church? Innocence. Uh, no, I mean, after your soul has been cleansed. Absolution. Right. Can you yeah, inherit yes. absolution? Yes. Have I inherited absolution? <laughs> Have I? I mean... I really do. You feel absolved? I, I don't want to inherit it. I, I, I don't believe in that no, sort of inheritance. Of course not. Yeah. Um, what about convicts who are sent here against their will? Mm, indeed. They didn't want to be here. No. Do they absorb the guilt? I mean, people were just lobbed here through no fault of their own. Mm. Um, the other thing that people should be aware of, just as a little aside, which is I found was interesting, is that DNA is not a liquid that can be divided down into microscopic drops. So the geneticist Graham Coop at the University of California 
Davis and his colleagues have studied how DNA disappears. If you pick one of your ancestors from 10 generations back, the odds are around 50% that you carry any DNA from him or her. And the odds get even worse beyond that. How many generations? uh, 10 generations. And it's roughly 10 generations from the first fleet. So, yeah. Mm. So it disappears over time, quite possibly. You Mm. could have on your record ironclad proof that uh, you had indigenous blood in you from 250 years ago mm. and it could all be gone and not a skerrick of it there. So um, to bear that in mind is just an interesting aside. This is the ridiculousness. It's interesting, it's, yeah. This is the ridiculousness of, of basing things on DNA. As you know, Trevor, I don't believe that we should be mm. talking about races at all. Mm. You know, we're the human race, for goodness sake, and mm. our superficial exterior differences are just... You know, according to science, are just uh, f- relatively recent uh, environmental adaptations. And I read mm. in one place, you know, even white Europeans may not have been white Europeans even as recently as you know twenty or twenty five thousand years ago. Mm. That they probably had dark skin, all of mm. them. Probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is about when. Well, when you see the images of Jesus on the cross, he's invariably very white Caucasian. Oh, well, that's and, all fantasy yeah, and anyway. Clearly, he would have been a black man of some description. Well, if he ever existed, of course. Indeed, yeah. Let's, let's, that's another topic <laughs> for another day. Yep. So, um, so just applying some of these ideas, because here's what I said earlier in the, in the podcast, dear listener, is, you know, what's the principle at play? Now, how does that play out in other scenarios? Does it still seem fair? So... Um, it could be that my descendants would have more rights than me. So to my knowledge, I have no Indigenous ancestry, Mm. so I couldn't participate in the special advisory body. Mm -hmm. If, however, my children marry an Indigenous person, then my grandchildren could, in theory, identify as Indigenous and participate. My grandchildren could have more rights than me due to racial profiling. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Doesn't that seem unfair isn't that racist? Sounds it. Go back to our definition of racism in the beginning. Indeed. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the concepts at play here is we got here first. So, in effect, the special rights to be granted to Indigenous people are a recognition that their ancestors were here first, that they owned it and it was taken from them against their will. In effect, non-Indigenous people at a legal level are second-class citizens in comparison. According to that schema? Yep. And, yeah. and as you said, and do we then rank people according to how long their ancestors yeah. have been here? Yeah. Dear listener, if you've just tuned in and you missed the first part, go back to the beginning because we acknowledged the disadvantage and suffering of Indigenous people, but not all of them. Uh, a lot of them, a disproportionate amount, yes, but not all of them. In effect, non-Indigenous people at a legal level are second-class citizens. That wouldn't look good if we applied the same thinking to refugees arriving by boat. Imagine if we said, okay, you can come in, but we don't like it. And your ancestors will be ineligible for certain advisory bodies until they intermarry with the people who got here first. Yes, indeed. What would the left say to that? That's how disgusting. Yeah. Uh, What is the Indigenous position on refugees? I would like to know. Um, because you see it's, it's about victim status mm. because obviously refugees we have sympathy for because they've had a hard time and we would not want to increase their hardship mm. 
in a nasty way. And so sympathies and emotions are at play where you then go, oh, well, that's not really fair. Mm. And like like me, I'm sure you've Mm. seen um, self-identified Indigenous spokespeople Mm. or commentators Mm. Expressing great sympathy for refugees on Nauru and Manus Island, and, yeah. you know, and that's a, a reasonable p- position for anyone to yeah. to hold. Yeah. But um, you know, according to your uh, proposition, mm. they would have fewer rights, wouldn't mm. they? Victims are not necessarily expert on providing their own solutions. So, what evidence is there that Indigenous rather than non-Indigenous people know what is best for Indigenous people? And that's partly, I mean, that's that's foundational to their claim, isn't it, for mm. wanting an Indigenous voice, is that mm. non-Indigenous people are just not qualified yes. to fix their problems. Because they haven't had the lived experience. Yeah. So I would say uh, lots of Indigenous leaders have been very poor. So somebody like Anthony Mundine advised against vaccinations, for goodness sake. Many Indigenous leaders were against marriage equality. Were they? Hmm. Ken Wyatt is part of a government that through reckless tax cuts has sabotaged the welfare system that many Indigenous people rely on and are going to rely on. And probably for several... So so Ken Wyatt, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, or however it's phrased, has done more damage for needy Indigenous people than anybody else in the last uh, little while simply by by agreeing to those tax cuts. Yes, and supporting it. So, um, so you know, these Indigenous leaders are not necessarily any better. And if I have Indigenous grandchildren, I can give better advice than those numbskulls about how best to care for my Indigenous grandchildren. It's not a very nice thing to say about your grandchildren. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, numbskulls as in Anthony Mundine, Ken White, people yes. like that. So I could give better advice than them sure. about what to do. Mm for potentially my Indigenous grandchild and, and great-grandchildren, but I'd be banned from doing so because of my skin colour. Yeah. These are uh, interesting arguments when you... And when you pull it prop- apart, you yep. can see the bankruptcy of that uh, whole theory. Yeah. How can we say there is an Indigenous position on anything? So I said earlier, what's the Indigenous position on refugees? Presumably they don't all think the same. Are they, like many Australians, fifty, you know, split 50-50 on important issues? So this is the... Uh, this, it's a racist thinking to say, well, all Indigenous people think this particular way or that particular way. That's right, or all non-Indigenous Because you're assuming because of their skin colour they have a certain characteristic. That's right. That, that is racism. You have to accept that there's a high likelihood that... Indigenous people have got to have a spectrum of views on issues as much as white people Wouldn't do. What do you think? Indeed. I mean, white people are arguing about what's the best thing to do for white people mm. and we're stuck 50-50 on liberal and labour most of the time and our thoughts on how the best to deal with it are at polar. You know, we're getting more and more apart. Mm. It's, it's racist to say that Aboriginal people would all think the same sure. on an issue. Yeah. It would be impossible for an advisory board to give full and frank advice as to, as to a, a, a dominating majority opinion of what Indigenous people think about it. Or not impossible, but difficult, fraught with danger and, you know, and 
And just because it is the majority view, maybe it's wrong. So, I mean, the majority voted for Scott Morrison in the last election, and I'm saying they're wrong. That was a big mistake. Mm. So, um, it was a small so, majority, but it was a majority. It yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So, um, so uh, I mentioned earlier that Indigenous people, there was a number of leaders were in, against marriage equality. Um, I've got a link here. There was a bark petition um, about 25 different tribes who signed it and saying that uh, they were against marriage equality and it was against uh, um, opposed to it and called for the sanctity of traditional marriage. So even on an issue like that, there's a hugely divergent opinion. I I have no idea Mm. what the traditional Indigenous attitude to homosexuality is. Do you have any idea? There wouldn't be one. But have you ever seen the uh, TV program Black Comedy? Is it black comedy? I've seen bits of it. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the recurring skits that they had on that program was some, you know, uh, obviously gay Aboriginal men, mm-hmm. you know, sort of you know, mm. yep. acting very yes. um, obviously mm. like, you know, homosexuals. Sort of a bit camp. Yeah, yep. very camp. Right. Yeah. Mm. And presumably it was supposed to be funny because we don't expect to see... Obviously, camp Aboriginal men is yeah. that is that what it was about? Could be. I didn't see it, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is Indigenous decision making by its leadership democratic, and does it matter? So Jacinta Nepijimpa Price said that um, <clears throat> going back to 2017, when First Nations Constitutional Convention was held at Uluru, the representatives in attendance were invited by nominees of the Referendum Council and not elected by Indigenous people. Not elected? No. No. So do we value democracy for Indigenous people or not? Do you know if um, Ms Price was there? Not sure. Mm, I'm not sure either. Don't know. Class divisions in Indigenous communities. Is there a division between working class and privileged Indigenous people? Uh, What was the Indigenous position on the recent tax cuts? I didn't hear a thing. Uh, as we've said, this is probably one of the biggest decisions affecting Indigenous people, but I didn't hear a peep. So uh, we never hear of working class Indigenous people, upper class Indigenous people, but they must exist. They're all lumped together as Indigenous. Yeah. And they would have different priorities uh, and interests. Mm. And it's Although, of course, there are working class Indigenous people. And of course. Stan Grant is one that comes to mind who who speaks about his um, childhood and his upbringing, and I'm you know it's pretty clear his family were working class Indigenous people. Very much, yeah. Of course, there is. Yeah. yeah. Um, just getting back to the inherited uh, rights, are inherited privileges fair? Uh, so the left often advocates for inheritance tax. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, recognises that there are good reasons why wealth and entitlement should not be passed down in full to descendants. And there's a pretty strong argument for that, I think. Mm. Shouldn't the same apply to land rights? Hmm, interesting. If you're a lefty in favour of inheritance tax, it's difficult to hold those two positions. But they're special. They're First Nations. I think we should be a republic. I think the notion of inherited rights belongs to the royal uh, of inherited rights belonging to the royal family is unjust. Mm. I don't believe privilege should be passed on down generations to a special family based on their DNA. Agree. Uh, so 
again, if you're a Republican, an anti-monarchist, because you don't like the idea of the inherited privilege of the royal family, then why then not? Are you against all inherited exactly privilege? Exactly across the board. It's a very good question. <sighs> we say that welfare should be based on need, not race. So I'd have no problem tripling the welfare payments to disadvantaged Indigenous people mm. and non-Indigenous indigenous people, people indeed. in remote communities. But a wealthy Indigenous city dweller should get no special treatment. Mm. The- which, which brings to mind, Trevor, um, when was the last time you filled in a, a Commonwealth um, document? The one with the little box? The one with the little box that asks you to tick whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. Yeah. Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, yes or no? That box should say, are you disadvantaged and poor? Are you on New Start? Are you on some welfare benefit? Uh, Do you earn less than 50,000 a year? That should be the box that you're ticking. It's a racist uh, inclusion on all those documents, isn't it? Yeah. Gee, we're going to get in trouble for this. Like, people are not going to cop this. Do you know, I was thinking about that recently and I was thinking, yeah, I always, you know, dutifully tick the non-Indigenous box. Oh. I think I'm just going to ignore it from now on. Right. I'm just not going to tick anything in yeah. yep. that relates to race. Yeah. Um, so I say, we say possibly, that identity politics is a scourge on our society. It sure is. Uh, Disadvantaged people should be coalescing together rather than splintering into mm. identity groups. Um, Stan Grant uh, was in the news uh, a year, year and a half, two years ago, sort of wrote a letter and uh, one of the quotes he said in it was, for so many of my people, Aboriginal people, there's a deep, deep wound that comes from the time of dispossession. Uh And I've got a link to an interesting letter by a refugee who who responds to the Stan Grant letter. And he just says, Stan, that's a a tribalistic sentiment that's unhelpful and fuels resentment. It doesn't lead to change. Um, Also in the Stan Grant um, speech he says... um, Someone's suffering was the scaffolding on which you built your prosperity. And what I would say to that is, uh, in terms of, say, Latin America, with the uh, Spanish invasion, they basically put all of the um, natives to work in the mines, extracted all the gold and silver and shipped it back to uh, Spain Spain, and depleted those countries of reserves which today would be in the trillions of dollars and mm. could be setting up those countries. Yeah. And, and that was wealth that was extracted and, and sent offshore. Here in Australia, we're more fortunate because uh, the sort of minerals and wealth of this country weren't, to, to a similar extent, extracted and shipped off to another country, mm. essentially you know, ignoring, of course, multinationals rotting the system and, and all the rest of it. But comparatively to a large extent, our wealth has stayed in this country yeah. and been spent yeah. on this country I don't think and, is, and is here for everybody. You're, exactly. you're not excluded from it. So mining of um, minerals in Australia yeah. didn't really reach a, uh, an intensive stage until probably around the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. Would that be right? 
Oh, I mean, there were gold rushes and things, of course. There were, but, yes, yeah, yeah. in the 19th century. Yeah. But, you know, when did the yeah. sort of mass exploitation of things like iron ore start? I think it was sort yeah. of... That was Lang um, Hancock flying his oh, plane over Western Australia and, and spotting yeah, but they iron were, ore from the... they were shipping it out before that, I think probably, you know, roughly the middle of the... I mean, there was that um, thing prior to World War Two where... Um, Bob Menzies, Prime Minister, ex-Prime Minister Bob Menzies was, was labelled Pig Iron Bob for shipping iron to the Japanese. Right, yeah. So just in more recent times. Yeah. And yes, you know, multinationals have taken some of that wealth and, and shipped it offshore, but to a large extent, much of the wealth stayed in the country and okay. it's there for all Australians, hopefully, to yeah. benefit from. But anyway, that's that argument. Um Right. One of our favourite writers over the years has been Kenan Malik. Indeed. Mm. So he talks about class, working class, and the plight of the working class people. And he talks about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And Kenan is such a marvellous writer that mm. I'm just going to read some of his stuff. So here we go. Um, Martin Luther King's insistence on non-violence is well known but his radicalism is often forgotten. In the mid-1960s, he took a decisive and politically brave stance against the Vietnam War, describing America as the great purveyor of violence in the world today. He became an advocate, too, of working-class struggles. In the weeks before his death, King was deeply involved in the Memphis sanitation workers' strike when rubbish collectors had taken industrial action for union recognition, better conditions and equal pay. To question poverty, he observed, is to question the capitalistic economy. So that's the sort of universalism that King was interested in. <coughs> Malcolm X reinvented himself to an even greater degree, a petty criminal in his youth that was in prison that he discovered the nation of Islam and became a Muslim. By the 1950s, he'd become um, the, uh, uh, an effective public advocate, a searing voice against racism. He is quoted as saying, there will ultimately be a clash between the oppressed and those who, that do the oppressing, but I don't think it will be based on the colour of the skin. Oh, really? That was Malcolm X. Wow. So even he had that sort of view. So um, bear that in mind, Indigenous leaders. It's about class and poverty and... Yes. And gathering together yes, everybody. Indeed. Your access to, to the uh, nation's resources. Yeah. Mm. Um, by the end of their lives, the two men had drawn closer to each other's views. Their differences were, however, real and spoke to an inherent tension within the struggle for racial equality. King expressed a universalist ethos that racism was intimately bound with the social structures of America and that challenging it required the creation of broader social movements. Malcolm X was sceptical both about the possibilities of such movements and about King's call for moderation to win wider support. He insisted that blacks had first to organise on their own and to protect themselves by any means necessary. It was a vision that inspired the radicalism of the Black Panthers and the Black Panther power movement. Uh, so there's a choice there, Indigenous leaders... I say go with the Martin Luther King version. You'll get more assistance if you do. Um, right. Uh, da, 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 da. I'll move on from that. Okay. 
Now we're going to move on to a guy called Coleman Hughes. And I've only discovered this guy about a year ago. And he's terrific. He's fascinating. He's terrific. <clears throat> and he's so young. He's only like 22 or yeah, something He's an undergraduate. Like he's like an that. undergraduate in philosophy, I think, at a university yeah. in New York. Yeah. So he, of course, is talking about America, United States, and he is a black man mm. of African-American descent, I believe. And he's talking about the wealth gap between African-American blacks and the white population and talking about how it's come about, that wealth gap. Is it because of discrimination or are there other factors at play? Um, And he's able to illustrate in this article, and I'm just sort of querying how much of it to tell, um, basically that, that there's an argument that even though laws are fair now, that black people were disadvantaged for so long, kept out of the property market, that they can never get back onto it and are therefore permanently disadvantaged that they can never in catch terms up. of wealth, yeah. which sounds a, a reasonable hypothesis. But he draws comparisons with other migrant groups who have had no benefits of any special sort and perhaps even more discrimination. Mm. So... Uh, He says, history tells a different story, starting with the California Alien Land Law of 1913. Fourteen states passed laws preventing Japanese-American peasant farmers from owning land and property. These laws existed until 1952, Mm. when the Supreme Court ruled them unconstitutional. Uh, Add to that the internment of 120,000 Japanese-Americans during World War II, and it's fair to say that they were given no bootstraps in America. Nevertheless, by 1970, census data showed Japanese-Americans out-earning Anglo-Americans, Irish-Americans, German-Americans, Italian-Americans and Polish-Americans. Again, for Asian-Americans on the whole, an analysis of wealth data from 1989 to 2013 um, predicted that their median wealth will soon surpass the white median level. So that's for Asians as a a race, Asian-Americans. If wealth differences were largely explained by America's history of favouring certain groups over others, then it would be hard to explain why Asian-Americans, who were never favoured, are on track to become wealthier than whites. Mm. And the argument that he puts forward, dear listener, is that culture is important. Indeed. That certain races, ethnicities, cultures all come with a culture. And those cultures are... You know, we praise them in certain ways. Mm. Of, oh, isn't this culture magnificent? Yeah. You know, those Italians know how to cook pasta or, Indeed. you know, wh- whatever it is about culture that you want to, mm. you know, the spirituality of, of Indigenous people or whatever. People always speak glowingly and positive about aspects of culture. Mm. But Colin Hughes makes the point that some cultures come with negative sides as yes. well. And sometimes those negative sides are in the wealth creation and he also areas. mentions uh, Haitian uh, yes. immigrants mm. to the United States uh, who were basically of African descent. Mm. And yet within you know, a relatively short period of time, their average wealth exceeded that of the African-Americans who'd been there for many generations. Yeah. So you might say about the Asian situation, well, they don't look black. And black people look <laughs> yeah. black and are discriminated in a certain way because of their look. 
And that would be a, a good argument. But the but, same applies to the Haitians. Exactly. So he says, <clears throat> a 2015 study of wealth in Boston found that the median black household, so this is black African-American, mm-hmm. uh, had only $8 of wealth. Um, but the $8 figure only pertained to black Bostonians of American ancestry. Black Bostonians of Caribbean ancestry had $12,000 of wealth. Mm. Despite having identical rates of college graduation, only slightly higher incomes, and being equally black in the same city. Mm. So, Caribbean blacks and American blacks, same city, same, slightly, slight, slightly higher income, but same rates of but college graduation. Physically indistinguishable Indeed, to the average person. In the same city. And um, he says, Similar disparities emerge when people are grouped by religion. A 2003 study found that Jewish households had a seven-to-one wealth advantage over conservative Protestant households, Mm. despite the fact that Protestants have been favoured over Jews for most of American history. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also carry that um, mythical, you know, Protestant work ethic. (laughs) Yes. um, So... What happens, of course, is in certain communities, the black African community, uh, well, there's, uh, first of all, amongst males, a a propensity not to um, value academic study because you're seen as being a whitey. (coughs) There's also issues to do with spending of money, which I'll get on to. Whereas in the, in the Caribbean black community, you know, education was valued. Mm. So, you know, big differences there. Also and, in Asian communities, education is very highly valued. Exactly. Mm. And we know, you know, that, you know, in Indian, uh, Indian and Asian communities value medicine, for example. You just find a disproportionate number of people of those yeah. races, ethnicities, if you like, mm. in those professions because of culture. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, where was I going to end it? And, and just with Jewish people, like uh, I've I spent a fair bit of time with some Jewish people and I can tell you those people talk business all the time. Do they? Like, <laughs> and they get together and it's about business. And it's and, cultural. And, and that's a cultural mm. thing. And, uh, you know, kids who grow up in a Jewish household hear about how to their parents money. and their parents' friends and their community make money in yeah. business. Yeah. And when you sit and absorb it, you learn that stuff Indeed. and you have, you know, wealth creation sense, of how to run a business sense, you're ahead of the game. Indeed. Yeah. Right. Um, so let me just see here. <clears throat> so Colin Hughes says that conspicuous amongst the sort of progressive left is, is whether people can help themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of that in the Indigenous community. Amongst some people, Jacinta Nappi Jimper Price would be one who'd say, mm-hmm. I think people can help themselves a bit more. Saying, yeah, that they have yep. to, rather than yep. just incessantly mm. complaining, they have to yep. get off their asses and do yep. something constructive. So on the American side, Coleman Hughes talks about what black uh, African Americans can do to help themselves as a group. And he said, no element of culture harms black wealth accrual more directly than spending patterns. Nielsen, one of the world's leading market research firms, keeps extensive data on American consumer behaviour broken down demographically. 
a 2017 report found compared to white women, black women were 14% more likely to own a luxury vehicle, Mm. 16% more likely to purchase costume jewellery and 9% more likely to purchase fine jewellery. A similar Nielsen report from 2013 found that only 62% of Americans own a smartphone, but 71% of blacks own one. Only 62%? That was in 2013. Oh, right. Owned a smartphone. It's probably higher now. Um, Moreover, all of these spending differences were unconditional on wealth and income. Mm. Uh, So it's a cultural thing rather than something determined by their, you know, wealth. Yeah. Uh, Talks about a study consistent with the Nielsen data. They found that blacks with comparable incomes to whites spent 17% less on education and 32% more on visible goods such as cars, jewellery and clothes. Mm. And that that's accounted for uh, about 50% of the sort of the wealth disparity. So these are things in the black American culture that seem to make sense to me. Mm. And bringing that back to our Australian Indigenous culture, I don't see the same bling culture. But certainly you have this idea in the remote communities about... um, uh, you know, what you own belongs to the tribe. Yeah, humbug is Humbuggers, what they call it. Yeah. yeah, and that's a cultural thing. Very much so. In those communities, which necessarily would suck the, uh, mm. the life force out of any person thinking of acquiring wealth because it's, why work hard when it's you're just dissipated. going to be giving it yeah. all away? I Indeed. mean, surely that's a cultural reason in some places... Not all, but surely that is a factor that comes to play in disadvantage. It would appear to be a fairly, um, I may be wrong, but Mm. a fairly um, consistent um, pattern throughout Indigenous societies. Mm. Uh, Let me just see here. He says here, Coleman Hughes again, just to sort of finish up, just like no person is born knowing how to brew beer or play basketball, no person is born knowing how to build wealth. These skills must be taught. And just like some cultures teach beer brewing or basketball playing better than others, some cultures teach wealth building better. Children from one culture may routinely hear phrases like asset diversification and mutual fund fund, and employment rate on the lips of their parents, whereas children from another culture may not hear such phrases until adulthood, if they ever hear them at all. Mm. So, good points. I never heard those those yeah. words in my childhood, I have to say. Yeah. So, uh, still on Coleman Hughes, and he has the parable of the pedestrian, um, which comes from a legal scholar, Amy Wax, apparently. So, try this parable out. A reckless driver runs a stoplight and hits a pedestrian, injuring her spine. Doctors confirm the pedestrian uh, that if she is ever to walk again, she'll have to spend many painstaking years in physical therapy. Clearly, she bears no responsibility for her injury. She was victimised by a reckless driver. Yet the driver cannot make her whole. He might pay for her medical bills, for instance, but he cannot make her attend her tedious physical therapy sessions. Only she can do that. Still, she might resist. She might write historical accounts detailing precisely how and why the driver injured her. When her physical therapists demand more of her, she might accuse them of blaming the victim. 
she might wallow in the unfairness of it all. But this will change nothing. The nature of her injury precludes the possibility of anyone besides her healing it. This is from a black man in America that I'm quoting for everyone reading this. Send in the racist taunts. Just bear that in mind where it comes from. Um, it's a good parable. Yeah. Yeah. I think that might be a good point to sort of... You know, there's other topics we could deal with, but I reckon, 12th man, without making the episode too long, probably an hour and ten minutes or something there, but that, that's, that's kind of the nutshell. The, the only other thing that we might talk about is often sort of I've found that Indigenous achievements of historical nature seem to be beaten up and exaggerated, it seems. Mm. That, you know, you read stories where, well, AFL football has its origins in the game that the local yeah. Indigenous people were playing. I don't or think many you, people are persuaded by that story, do you? Yeah, or, or, or that Indigenous people were these amazing astrologers and mathematicians. Oh, that's and, the one that I find and, 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 just unbelievable, yeah. that, that they're now called, they're not just, you know, people who looked at the, at the stars. <coughs> They're now called astronomers. They're called indigenous yeah. astronomers. And, and sure, they may have an understanding of patterns in the sky, etc. Yes. But, but did they are, know what stars were? I very much doubt it. These things seem to be beaten up where people feel a need to sort of overstate, it Overstate seems, and grossly the, the, exaggerate. The, the, the achievement of indigenous people. And, the, and I just say to them, you don't have to. Like, yeah. indigenous people discovered what they did, built what they did, achieved what they did. To suit the conditions of where they were. I exactly. mean, this was a country with poor soil but a certain type of vegetation and animals and they, they you know, survived quite well with, well, they with survived. what they were doing. Yeah. And, and so it's no shame to... I think it's quite patronising, to, to be honest. You know, it's yeah. like, it's like you, you know, when you, you know, your neighbour brings their child over and says... Do you know what my son did today, my right. two-year-old? Right. You know, he, right. he yeah. built this great sandcastle and you go, oh, gee, that's terrific. Right, yeah. So, it's, mag it's a magnificent structure, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's so patronising yeah. to, as you say, to inflate, grossly inflate the achievements when, you know, I mean, compared with just about, you know, the, the technological culture of just about any other part of the world. They were yeah. very rudimentary. Their technology was extremely rudimentary. Yeah. And it's just, there's nothing wrong with that. That's nothing wrong okay. with it at and, all. And, and it's nothing to be ashamed or yes. embarrassed about. Yes. That I mean, this, is, this is world is. history. Yes. And I think we all benefit from just being honest about it yeah. all. I mean, it's not as if we prance around saying, oh, gee, our European ancestors, weren't they amazing compared yes. with everybody else? Yes. I mean, to me, I yes. see the whole of humanity's mm. achievements as the, you know, the achievements of humanity, yes. not the achievements of Germans or yeah. Japanese or whatever, you know? Yes, yeah. So, so sure, these things are of interest, but... Mm. Boy, they do seem to be beaten up. And, and don't you... And I could go into detail about yeah. them, but I won't in the interest of keeping this podcast oh. at, a, at a reasonable level. And it, it's, <laughs> there's a sort of a tinge of the nastiness to it, which it, it's, it's a minor matter in the scheme of the bigger issues that we've explored. And, yes. and the other one, just as a sideline, was just that Indigenous people are, are painted as, as great ecological custodians of our land who kept it in a pristine condition yeah. that we, of course, now are, are ruining. And, yeah. of course, our record now is very poor, but, mm. uh, the, 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 it, you know, 
it's without doubt that Indigenous people on arriving in Australia wiped out all of this large, slow-moving... The megafauna. Megafauna, lovely fairy balls of protein. I'm I'm, I'm not sure that's really been proven one way or another. In in my readings, it has. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. And uh, and the vegetation was changed dramatically by Mm -hmm. fire burning. I mean, Mm. there was a lot of firing going on and... Mm -hmm. It's not a criticism. Yeah. It's just the way that they conducted things. Yeah. But but then to turn around and, and to claim that they were great conservationists and kept the land pristine yeah. in the condition that they found yeah. it and understood the changes that that could be made to a landscape and and mm. uh, and didn't uh, yeah. is, is just another sort of sideline issue. That's, but there's another so, issue, and that's you know what you were saying about culture. You know how you know if if Jewish people. Uh, talk about business all the time over the dinner table. Their kids are going to grow up Mm. with those concepts already learned. Mm. Now, what I've read about the Jewish history, what little I've read, Mm. is that that hasn't always been the case and that came about as as a result of certain historical expulsions by certain European countries where at some point they they would be happy to have Jewish people in their community or living on the fringes of their communities because they served a good purpose. At other times they decided they didn't want them anymore and they would they would tell them to get lost. And mm. there was a migration from France, I think, into Eastern Europe, like Poland and Lithuania and countries like that, at some point several hundred years ago, where the the, the Poles and the Lithuanians, I think it was, uh, suddenly decided that it was it w- would be good for their local economy to have Jewish people come and help them and, and assume certain roles. Mm. And so uh, while Jewish people didn't always undertake those specialised um, roles as moneylenders or whatever, they learnt that it was to their advantage to pursue mm. those occupations and and they, were, and they did. Yeah, my understanding as well is, is that they were... In many areas, banned from owning land. Yes, and that they had to resort to to trades, um, you know, manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, small but Jewish people ju- in in other stuff. parts so, of of yeah. say North mm. Africa or the Middle mm. East didn't. Mm. You know, they didn't take on the same specialized roles. Mm. So my point is, culture is is learned and it's not fixed mm. and it can be changed. Mm. And uh, so you know, why not? Why can't Indigenous people? And, of course, they can change their culture. Mm. And yet, uh, you know, one thing that, that I, um, I suppose have objection to is this idea that Indigenous culture is, uh, is rigid or unchanging mm. and that mm. they have to protect it and preserve it at all costs. Mm. You know, obviously, they don't. Mm. And if it's in some aspects disadvantageous, why not change it? Yeah. The, the other thing as well, a little sideline as part of all this, is just uh, the respect paid to Indigenous spiritual beliefs mm. that we don't give to Christian, Indeed. Uh, Muslim or, or other religions. Like you'll find people on the left who would be appalled at the idea of, and rightly so, the mm. Lord's Prayer in Parliament, in Parliament uh, as spiritual... Bumbo jumbo yeah. nonsense. Yet we'll happily engage in a smoking ceremony exactly. in the foyer. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Yes. And if uh, we, for example, said, well, you know, we don't need the smoking ceremony, thank you very much, they'd say, well, that's a bit disrespectful, uh, disrespectful isn't it? Yes. You know? Yes. So and why, is they it, have why are they special? Because 
and we go back through all the issues that we've yeah. just been through exactly. in this yeah. uh, thing. So also we're finding that there's a, a sort of a magical respect for things like Indigenous healing practices yes. and we're now finding Indigenous people in our hospitals providing Indigenous healing services mm. which, you know, we would never allow Chinese medicine in because mm. we'd say it hasn't been proven. That's right. But we allow this uh, this in, yeah. and so we're just the, being this, we're just trying to be consistent. Yes. Whereas you know, as yeah. we know, some on the left are very inconsistent. Yes. So, so there you go. That's uh, in a nutshell our arguments as mm. to indigenous matters. And there's a lot more we could talk about. Indeed, and we could go into greater detail about other stuff, but to mm. keep it in t- uh, sort of in a reasonable time, and so. To any potential Indigenous spokesperson who we invite onto the show, uh, we would have referred you to this particular episode and said, have a listen. Mm. And by all means, get in contact if you want to uh, debate any of the particular issues we've raised. Mm. Send us a note telling us what you are going to debate and maybe give us a heads up on Mm. what your actual thoughts are and why we're wrong mm. and then we'll have a debate and sure. and convince us that we're mistaken or wrong or something yeah. like that so that would be good so, i think i've i've yeah. even changed my mind a little bit on julia julian assange you know I was, yeah. did you see the four corners program about him on monday night? no i didn't it was so. interesting and look i don't know but we can talk about that another time yeah, yeah. do you want to go home or you just want to go onto a onto general topics now <laughs> i don't mind <laughs> What do you feel like? I don't have any. I don't have them on board. But if you, you no, that's we'll, all right. We'll Let's talk about Julian another time. Okay, but um, yeah. look, you know. Um, so, so, dear listener, just one more yeah, thing okay. I would say, and and I have a bit of a problem with the way, you know, other quite well-meaning people, I'm sure, tend to romanticise indigenous culture as some kind of garden and garden of Eden, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, humanity living in harmony with nature thing. Yep. Whereas the reality, according to, you know, historical documents, is, you know, it may have been quite idealistic in certain very fertile, nice, comfortable niches, environmental niches in Australia, like around the Sydney Basin or, you know, even just about anywhere on the East Coast, I suppose. But mm. in the interior, it was pretty tough going for a lot of Indigenous people a lot of the time. Mm. And their culture was not all that um, uh, kind, for example, to women and girls. Yeah. And from what I've read, it, being a female in the Indigenous culture was often a pretty tough assignment, mm. Mm. Indeed. if I can put it like that. And yeah. I've read some pretty horrifying reports mm. um, about it. Mm. So there you go. That's you one go. more aspect mm. that I think people need to put a bit of, you know, put Indigenous culture into a bit of perspective. Mm. All right, that's that issue. So, dear listener, we normally on this podcast oh, run through the topics of the week and and, uh, and thank the sponsors. I, uh, well, I don't have the list in front of me. Oh, actually, <laughs> maybe I do. Uh, the Maybe the patrons don't want to be associated patrons, with with. I should uh, say, rather than the sponsors. Well, yeah, let's 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 uh, let's find the patrons. We've got time to do that. Let me just bring them up here and uh, patrons and beer sponsors. 
So, dear listener. You're the beer sponsor today. Yeah, I am the beer sponsor. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we don't do this for a living. This is a little part-time thing that we do on the side. Uh, there are expenses, and I'm clearly going to need to invest in some sort of wireless transmitter on 4G t- so that I can get this streaming oh, because okay. my phone was tethered and it just didn't do the trick this time. Okay. So... Um, we subscribe to a number of uh, newspapers and magazines and uh, there's hosting fees and things. So to help cover the costs, we have patrons. So the way it works is, uh, obviously, this is free to listen to. You can download it. You don't have to. You don't need any special password. It's all there. Uh, and we simply say to you that you're entitled to listen to 20 to 25 episodes, absolutely free. But if at the end of that time you reach the point where you think, Gosh, I'm enjoying this podcast. Can't wait for it to come out. And every, you know, I mean, we'd record on Tuesday night. Every Wednesday, you're, you're looking and checking your app if it's there and you're excited when it pops up. If you're in that category, we expect you to become a patron and stump up and and just a dollar a show, US dollar a show. It's not a all lot. we ask, less than a cup of coffee a month probably and good value, I say. <laughs> now, if you don't like that idea uh, and, you stu- and you do enjoy the show, then really what you're doing, is you're like the person who would um, drive through the countryside, you'd see the uh, bag of avocados in the honesty box and would take the avocados and not and put, any, not money put any money in the honesty box. So, yeah. um, And we know you're not like that. No, you're not. So <laughs> if, if you enjoy the program, the podcast and appreciate the effort that goes into it and see some value in that, yes. then uh, hop onto the website, ironfistvelvetclub.com.au. You'll see some links for Patreon. You can uh, sign up or you can just do it through PayPal donations. Right. Some people who have done that in the past, some of them as long ago as the 5th of February 2016 was Sean... It was our first. Well done, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayno, Ayame, Allison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Broman, Matt J, Robert, Rod, Pale, Maddockman, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Squeaky Wheel, Daniel, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain, Doomsday, Aiden, Wheat Watcher, Nico, Andy, Murray, Melinda, Adam, Greg, Professor, Dr. Dentist, Will, Glenn, Craig, Matthew, Clinton, and Alexander. Some people don't like Patreon, so they do it via PayPal. Thank you, Dean. Ken was the beneficiary. Mark, Mr. Anderson, and Corinne. Uh, the list time, is getting longer, though, isn't it? Uh, we get a couple, you know, usually once a month or something like that. So yeah, let will give you an example. What are we on? We did quite well in the last couple of months. We picked up about six in the last couple of months, so that was good. Um, also... We have beer sponsors, and thank you to Was Wayno, Landon, Bronwyn, Dave, Adam, Landon, Caitlin, Zach, Captain Doomsday, and the Iron Fist for tonight. Good on you. What else can we say? Um, we've got the website. Look, how are you accessing this podcast? You should be uh, subscribing and downloading in an app. If you're on an iPhone, there's a purple app. Just use it and subscribe. It'll appear automatically. Don't wait for a Facebook notification and then think to just stream it from the website. Like, get an app and just download it and it happens automatically. That's the easiest And they way. pay through the Cost Apple them nothing. Store, do they? Cost them nothing. Oh, nothing. Yeah, the app's oh, okay. free, the thing's free, and it'll just arrive in your, um, okay. uh, in your app. So you should be doing that. You mm. should be on our Facebook page and just sort of liking the page mm. and that way... When we get this live streaming worked, you'll get a little notification saying 
live streaming. And what you'll be able to do is communicate with us and talk to us and leave messages and we'll yeah. be able to deal with them. So, and we love feedback. Yeah, Joe, Joe and, and Watley tuned in while they could but left, I think, because it was just too difficult. Mm. Fair enough. And what else can we say uh, that I want to get out? Um, we've got the website, got the Facebook page. Um, send us some tips, articles, things like that that you might come across. That would be good. People to speak to who you think might be of interest. Point them to our... Um, podcast and mm. tell them about it. Mm. Even your friends, like, have you told your friends about this podcast and said, "Have I've a listen to this"? There you go. <laughs> uh, that's the hard sell on all those things. Oh, and one other thing. This is actually uh, now we're getting up to an hour and a half. Do you know I did two hours of podcasting before we even started Twelfth Man? How was that today? I was on uh, Cam Riley's podcast, The oh, Bullshit Filter. Oh, yes, okay. and. Uh, so we recorded an episode on um, Boris Johnson. Oh. Mm. Yes. So The new clown in town. Yeah. So if you want more of me, you can go onto Cam's uh, podcast, mm. The Bullshit Filter, and I'm on that one. And we had a – look, it, it was a fun episode, but you probably do need to know and be familiar with their normal show because there was a lot of in-jokes. So okay. some of it will be lost on you if you're not a regular listener, but it's worthwhile and Cam does a great podcast, mm -hmm. so uh, listen to that one. All right, well, that's the end of this episode of the award-winning Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Twelfth Man, as always, you've been magnificent. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure. We'll be back next week, I think, Scott, and talk to you then. Yeah. Bye, all. Bye. See ya. That was good. That was good, chat. Not a beer. <laughs>